Chapter 7 I got hold of Mrs. Gross as soon after this as I could, and I could give no intelligible account of how I fought out the interval. Yet I still hear myself cry as I fairly threw myself into her arms. They know! It's too monstrous! They know! They know! And what on earth? I felt her incredulity as she held me. Why, all that we know! And heaven knows what else besides! Then, as she released me, I made it out to her. Made it out, perhaps only now, with full coherency even to myself. Two hours ago, in the garden, I could scarce articulate, Flora saw. Mrs. Gross took it as she might have taken a blow in the stomach. She has told you, she panted. Not a word. That's the horror. She kept it to herself. The child of eight. That child. Unutterable still, for me, was the stupefaction of it. Mrs. Gross, of course, could only gape the wider. Then how do you know? I was there. I saw with my eyes, saw that she was perfectly aware. Do you mean aware of him? No, of her. I was conscious as I spoke that I looked prodigious things, for I got the slow reflection of them in my companion's face. Another person, another person this time, but a figure of quite unmistakable horror and evil. A woman in black, pale and dreadful, with such an air also and such a face, on the other side of the lake. I was there with the child, quiet for the hour, and in the midst of it she came. Came how? From where? From where they come from? She just appeared and stood there, but not so near. And without coming nearer? Oh, for the effect and the feeling, she might have been as close as you. My friend, with an odd impulse, fell back a step. Was she someone you've never seen? Yes, but someone the child has. Someone you have. Then, to show how I had thought it all out, my predecessor, the one who died. Miss Jessel, Miss Jessel, you don't believe me, I pressed. She turned right and left in her distress. How can you be sure? This drew from me in the state of my nerves a flash of impatience. Then ask Flora. She's sure. But I had no sooner spoken than I caught myself up. No, for God's sake, don't. She'll say she isn't. She'll lie. Mrs. Gross was not too bewildered instinctively to protest. Oh, how can you? Because I'm clear. Flora doesn't want me to know. It's only then to spare you. No, no, there are depths. Depths. The more I go over it, the more I see in it. And the more I see in it, the more I fear. I don't know what I don't see, what I don't fear. Mrs. Gross tried to keep up with me. You mean you're afraid of seeing her again? Oh, no, that's nothing now. Then I explained. It's of not seeing her. But my companion only looked wan. I don't understand you. Why, it's that the child may keep it up, and that the child assuredly will without my knowing it. At the image of this possibility, Mrs. Gross for a moment collapsed, yet presently to pull herself together again, as if from the positive force of the sense of what should we yield an inch there would really be to give way to. Dear, dear, we must keep our heads, and after all, if she doesn't mind— she even tried a grim joke. Perhaps she likes it. Likes such things? A scrap of an infant? Isn't it just a proof of her blessed innocence? My friend bravely inquired. She brought me for the instant almost round. Oh, we must clutch at that. We must cling to it. If it isn't a proof of what you say, it's a proof of God knows what. For the woman's a horror of horrors. Mrs. Gross at this fixed her eyes a minute on the ground, then at last raising them. Tell me how you know she said. Then you admit it's what she was. Then you admit it's what she was, I cried. Tell me how you know, my friend simply repeated. No, by seeing her, by the way she looked. 
At you? Do you mean so wickedly? Dear me, no, I could have borne that. She gave me never a glance. She only fixed the child. Mrs. Gross tried to see it. Fixed her? Oh, with such awful eyes. She stared at mine as if they might really have resembled them. Do you mean of dislike? God help us, no. Of something much worse. Worse than dislike? This left her indeed at a loss. With a determination, indescribable, with a kind of fury of intention. I made her turn pale. Intention? To get hold of her? Mrs. Gross, her eyes just lingering on mine, gave a shudder and walked to the window, and while she stood there looking out, I completed my statement. That's what Flora knows. After a little, she turned round. The person was in black, you say? In mourning, rather poor, almost shabby, but yes, with extraordinary beauty. I now recognized to what I had at last, stroke by stroke, brought the victim of my confidence, for she quite visibly weighed this. Oh, handsome, very, very, I insisted, wonderfully handsome, but infamous. She slowly came back to me. Mrs. Miss Jessel was infamous. She once more took my hand in both her own, holding it as tight as if to fortify me against the increase of alarm I might draw from this disclosure. They were both infamous, she finally said. So for a little we faced it once more together, and I found absolutely a degree of help in seeing it now so straight. I appreciate, I said, the great decency of your not having hitherto spoken, but the time has certainly come to give me the whole thing. She appeared to assent to this, but still only in silence, seeing which I went on. I must have it now. Of what did she die? Come, there was something between them. There was everything. In spite of the difference? Oh, of their rank, their condition? She brought it woefully out. She was a lady. I turned it over. I again saw. Yes, she was a lady. And he so dreadfully below, said Mrs. Gross. I felt that I doubtless needn't press too hard, in such company, on the place of a servant in the scale, but there was nothing to prevent an acceptance of my companion's own measure of my predecessor's abasement. There was a way to deal with that, and I dealt, the more readily for my full vision, on the evidence of our employer's late, clever, good-looking own man, impudent, assured, spoiled, depraved. The fellow is a hound? Mrs. Gross considered as if it were perhaps a little a case for a sense of shades. I have never seen one like him. He did what he wished. With her? With them all. It was as if now, in my friend's own eyes, Miss Jessel had again appeared. I seemed at any rate for an instant to see their evocation of her as distinctly as I had seen her by the pond, and I brought out with decision, It must have been also what she wished. Mrs. Gross's face signified that it had been indeed, but she said at the same time, Poor woman, she paid for it. Then do you know what she died of? I asked. No, I know nothing. I wanted not to know. I was glad enough I didn't, and I thanked heaven she was well out of this. Yet you had then your idea of her real reason for leaving. Oh, yes, as, as to that, she couldn't have stayed. Fancy it here, for a governess. And afterward I imagined, and I still imagined, and what I imagine is dreadful. Not so dreadful as what I do, I replied, on which I must have shown her, as I was indeed but too conscious, a front of miserable defeat. It brought out again all of her compassion for me, and at the renewed touch of her kindness my power to resist broke down. I burst, as I had the other time, made her burst into tears. 
She took me to her motherly breast, and my lamentation overflowed. I don't do it, I sobbed in despair. I don't save or shield them. It's far worse than I dreamed. They're lost. Chapter 8 What I had said to Mrs. Gross was true enough. There were, in the matter I had put before her, depths and possibilities that I lacked resolution to sound, so that when we met once more in the wonder of it, we were of a common mind about the duty of resistance to extravagant fancies. We were to keep our heads if we should keep nothing else, difficult indeed as that might be in the face of what, in our prodigious experience, was least to be questioned. Late that night, while the house slept, we had another talk in my room, when she went all the way with me as to its being beyond doubt that I had seen exactly what I had seen. To hold her perfectly in the pinch of that, I found I had only to ask her how, if I had made it up, I came to be able to give, of each of the persons appearing to me, a picture disclosing, to the last detail, their special marks, a portrait on the exhibition of which she had instantly recognized and named them. She wished, of course, small blame to her, to sink the whole subject, and I was quick to assure her that my own interest in it had now violently taken the form of a search for the way to escape from it. I encountered her on the ground of a probability that, with recurrence, for recurrence we took for granted, I should get used to my danger, distinctly professing that my personal exposure had suddenly become the least of my discomforts. It was my new suspicion that was intolerable, and yet even to this complication the later hours of the day had brought a little ease. On leaving her, after my first outbreak, I had, of course, returned to my pupils, associating the right remedy for my dismay with that sense of their charm which I had already found to be a thing I could positively cultivate, and which had never failed me yet. I had simply, in other words, plunged afresh into Flora's special society, and there became aware, it was almost a luxury, that she could put her little conscious hand straight upon the spot that ached. She had looked at me in sweet speculation, and then had accused me to my face of having cried. I had supposed I had brushed away the ugly signs, but I could literally, for the time at all events, rejoice under this fathomless charity that they had not entirely disappeared. To gaze into the depths of blue of the child's eyes and pronounce their loveliness a trick of premature cunning was to be guilty of a cynicism in preference to which I naturally preferred to abjure my judgment, and so far as might be, my agitation. I couldn't abjure for merely wanting to, but I could repeat to Mrs. Gross, as I did there, over and over in the small hours, that with their voices in the air, their pressure on one's heart, and their fragrant faces against one's cheek, everything fell to the ground but their incapacity and their beauty. It was a pity that, somehow, to settle this once and for all, I had equally to re-enumerate the signs of subtlety that, in the afternoon, by the lake, had made a miracle of my show of self-possession. It was a pity to be obliged to reinvestigate the certitude of the moment itself and repeat how it had come to me as a revelation that the inconceivable communion I then surprised was a matter for either party of habit. It was a pity that I should have had to quaver out again the reasons for my not having in my delusion, so much as question that the little girl saw our visitant, even as I actually saw Mrs. Gross herself, and that she wanted, by just so much as she did thus see, to make me suppose she didn't, and at the same time, without showing anything, arrive at a guess as to whether I myself did. It was a pity that I needed once more to describe the portentous little activity by which she sought to divert my attention. The perceptible increase of movement, the greater intensity of play, the singing, the gabbling of nonsense, and the invitation to romp. Yet if I had not indulged, to prove there was nothing in it, in this review, I should have missed the two or three dim elements of comfort that still remained to me. 
I should not, for instance, have been able to asseverate to my friend that I was certain, which was so much to the good, that I, at least, had not betrayed myself. I should not have been prompted, by stress of need, by desperation of mind, I scarce know what to call it, to invoke such further aid to intelligence as might spring from pushing my colleague fairly to the wall. She had told me, bit by bit, under pressure, a great deal, but a small shifty spot on the wrong side of it all still sometimes brushed my brow like the wing of a bat. And I remember how, on this occasion, for the sleeping house and the concentration alike of our danger and our watch seemed to help. I felt the importance of giving the last jerk to the curtain. "'I don't believe anything so horrible,' I recollect saying. "'No, let us put it definitely, my dear, that I don't. But if I did, you know, there's a thing I should require now, just without sparing you the least bit more, of not a scrap, come, to get out of you. What was it you had in mind when, in our distress, before Miles came back, over the letter from his school, you said, under my insistence, that you didn't pretend for him that he had not literally ever been bad?' He has not literally ever in these weeks that I myself have lived with him and so closely watched him. He has been an imperturbable little prodigy of delightful, lovable goodness. Therefore you might have perfectly have made the claim for him if you had not, as it happened, seen an exception to take. What was your exception, and to what passage in your personal observation of him did you refer? It was a dreadfully austere inquiry, but levity was not our note, and at any rate, before the grey dawn admonished us to separate, I had got my answer." What my friend had had in mind proved to be immensely to the purpose. It was neither more nor less than the circumstance that, for a period of several months, Quint and the boy had been perpetually together. It was, in fact, the very appropriate truth that she had ventured to criticize the propriety, to hint at the incongruity of so close an alliance, and even to go so far on the subject as a frank overture to Miss Jessel. Miss Jessel had, with a most strange manner, requested her to mind her business, and the good woman had, on this, directly approached little Miles. What she had said to him, since I pressed, was that she liked to see young gentlemen not forget their station. I pressed again, of course, at this. You reminded him that Quint was only a base menial. As you might say, and it was his answer, for one thing, that was bad. And for another thing? I waited. He repeated your words to Quint? No, not that. It's just what he wouldn't. She could still impress upon me. I was sure, at any rate, she added, that he didn't. But he denied certain occasions. "'What occasions? "'When they had been about together, "'quite as if Quint were his tutor, "'and a very grand one, "'and Miss Jessel only for the little lady, "'when he had gone off with the fellow, I mean, "'and spent hours with him. "'He then prevaricated about it. "'He said he hadn't. "'Her assent was clear enough "'to cause me to add in a moment. "'I see. "'He lied. "'Oh,' Mrs. Gross mumbled. "'This was a suggestion that it didn't matter, "'which, indeed, she backed up by a further remark.' You see, after all, Miss Jessel didn't mind. She didn't forbid him. I considered. Did he put that to you as a justification? At this she dropped again. No, he never spoke of it. Never mentioned her in connection with Quint. She saw, visibly flushing, where I was coming out. Well, he didn't show anything. He denied, she repeated. He denied. Lord, how I pressed her now, so that you could see he knew what was between the two wretches. "'I don't know. I don't know,' the poor woman groaned. "'You do know, you dear thing,' I replied. "'Only you haven't my dreadful boldness of mind, and you keep back, "'out of timidity and modesty and delicacy, "'even the impression that, in the past, when you had, "'without my aid, to find her about in silence, "'most of all made you miserable. "'But I shall get it out of you yet. "'There was something in the boy that suggested to you,' I continued, "'that he covered and concealed their relation.' 
Oh, he couldn't prevent your learning the truth, I dare say. But heavens, I fell with vehemence at thinking, what it shows that they must, to that extent, have succeeded in making of him. Oh, nothing that's not nice now, Mrs. Gross lugubriously pleaded. I don't wonder that you looked queer, I persisted, when I mentioned to you the letter from his school. I doubt if I looked as queer as you, she retorted with a homely face. And if he was so bad then, as that comes to, how is he such an angel now? Yes, indeed. And if he was a fiend at school, how? How? Well, I said in my torment, you must put it to me again, but I shall not be able to tell you for some days. Only put it to me again, I cried in a way that made my friend stare. There are directions in which I must not for the present let myself go. Meanwhile, I returned to her first example, the one in which she had just previously referred, of the boy's happy capacity for an occasional slip. If Quint, on your remonstrance at the time you speak of, was a base menial, one of the things Miles said to you, I find myself guessing, was that you were another. Again, her admission was so adequate that I continued. And you forgave him that. Wouldn't you? Oh, yes. And we exchanged there, in the stillness, a sound of the oddest amusement. Then I went on. At all events, while he was with the man, Miss Flora was with the woman. It suited them all. It suited me, too, I felt only too well, by which I mean that it suited exactly the particularly deadly view I was in the very act of forbidding myself to entertain. But I so far succeeded in checking the expression of this view that I will throw just here no further light on it than may be offered by the mention of my final observation to Mrs. Gross. His having lied and been impudent are, I confess, less engaging specimens than I had hoped to have from you of the outbreak in him of the little natural man. Still, I mused, they must do, for they make me feel more than ever that I must watch. It made me blush the next minute to see in my friend's face how much more unreservedly she had forgiven him than her anecdote struck me as presenting to my own tenderness an occasion for doing. This came out when, at the schoolroom door, she quitted me. Surely you don't accuse him of carrying on an intercourse that he conceals from me? Ah, remember that, until further evidence, I now accuse nobody. Then, before shutting her out to go by another passage to her own place, I must just wait, I wound up. Chapter 9 I waited and waited, and the days, as they elapsed, took something from my consternation. A very few of them, in fact, passing in constant sight of my pupils without a fresh incident, sufficed to give grievous fancies, and even to odious memories, a kind of brush of the sponge. I have spoken of the surrender to their extraordinary childish grace as a thing I could actively cultivate, and it may be imagined, if I neglected now to address myself to this source for whatever it would yield. Stranger than I can express, certainly, was the effort to struggle against my new lights. It would doubtless have been, however, a greater tension still had it not been so frequently successful. I used to wonder how my little charges could help guessing that I thought strange things about them, and the circumstances that these things only made them more interesting was not by itself a direct aid to keeping them in the dark. I trembled lest they should see that they were so immensely more interesting. Putting things at the worst, at all events, as in meditation I so often did, any clouding of their innocence could only be, blameless and foredoomed as they were, a reason the more for taking risks. There were moments when, by an irresistible impulse, I found myself catching them up and pressing them to my heart. As soon as I had done so, I used to say to myself, "'What will they think of that? Doesn't it betray too much?' It would have been easy to get into a sad, wild tangle about how much I might betray, but the real account, I feel, of the hours of peace that I could still enjoy— 
was that the immediate charm of my companions was a beguilement still effective even under the shadow of the possibility that it was studied, for if it occurred to me that I might occasionally excite suspicion by the little outbreaks of my sharper passion for them, so too I remember wondering if I mightn't see a queerness in the traceable increase of their own demonstrations. They were, at this period, extravagantly and preternaturally fond of me, which, after all I could reflect, was no more than a graceful response in children perpetually bowed over and hugged. The homage of which they were so lavish succeeded, in truth, for my nerves, quite as well as if I never appeared to myself, as I may say, literally to catch them out of purpose in it. They had never, I think, wanted to do so many things for their poor protectress. I mean, though they got their lessons better and better, which was naturally what would please her most, in the way of diverting, entertaining, surprising her, reading her passages, telling her stories, acting her charades, pouncing out at her in disguises as animals and historical characters, and above all, astonishing her by the pieces they had secretly got by heart and could interminably recite. I should never get to the bottom, were I to let myself go even now, of the prodigious private commentary, all under still more private correction, which, in these days, I overscored their full hours. They had shown me from the first a facility for everything, a general faculty which, while taking a fresh start, achieved remarkable flights. They got their little tasks as if they loved them, and indulged, from the mere exuberance of the gift, in the most unimposed little miracles of memory. They not only popped out at me as tigers and as Romans, but as Shakespeareans, astronomers, and navigators. This was so singularly the case that it had presumably much to do with the fact as to which, at the present day, I am at a loss for a different explanation. I allude to my unnatural composure on the subject of another school for miles. What I remember is that I was content, not for the first time, to open the question, and that contentment must have sprung from the sense of his perpetually striking show of cleverness. He was too clever for a bad governess, for a parson's daughter, to spoil, and the strangest, if not the brightest thread in the pensive embroidery I just spoke of, was the impression I might have got if I had dared to work it out, that he was under some influence operating in his small intellectual life as a tremendous incitement. If it was easy to reflect, however, that such a boy could postpone school, it was, at least, as marked that for such a boy to have been kicked out by a schoolmaster was a mystification without end. Let me add that in their company now, and I was careful almost never to be out of it, I could follow no scent very far. We lived in a cloud of music and love and success and private theatricals. The musical sense in each of the children was of the quickest, but the elder in especial had a marvelous knack of catching and repeating. The schoolroom piano broke into all gruesome fancies, and when they failed, there were confabulations in corners with a sequel of one of them going out in the highest spirits in order to come in as something new. I had had brothers myself, and it was no revelation to me that little girls could be slavish idolaters of little boys. What surpassed everything was that there was a little boy in the world who could have, for the inferior age, sex, and intelligence, so fine a consideration. They were extraordinarily at one, and to say that they neither ever quarreled or complained is to make the note of praise coarse for their quality of sweetness. Sometimes, indeed, when I dropped into coarseness, I perhaps came across traces of little understandings between them by which one of them should keep me occupied while the other slipped away. There is a naive side, I suppose, in all diplomacy, but if my pupils practiced upon me, it was surely with the minimum of grossness. It was all in the other quarter that, after a lull, the grossness broke out. I find that I really hang back, but I must take the plunge. In going on with the record of what was hideous at Bly, I not only challenge the most liberal faith, for which I little care, but, and this is another matter, 
I renew what I myself suffered. I again push my way through it to the end. There came suddenly an hour after which, as I look back, the affair seems to me to have been all pure suffering. But I have at least reached the heart of it, and the straightest road out is doubtless to advance. One evening, with nothing to lead up to or prepare it, I felt the cold touch of the impression that had breathed on me the night of my arrival, and which must, lighter then, as I have mentioned, I should probably have made little of in memory had my subsequent sojourn been less agitated. I had not gone to bed. I sat reading by a couple of candles. There was a room full of old books at Bly, last century fiction, some of it, which, to the extent of a distinctly deprecated renown, but never to so much as that of a stray specimen, had reached the sequestered home and appealed to the unavowed curiosity of my youth. I remember that the book I had in my hand was Fielding's Amelia, also that I was wholly awake. I recall further, but the general conviction that it was horribly late, and a particular objection to looking at my watch. I figure, finally, that the white curtain draping in the fashion of those days, the head of little Flora's bed, shrouded, as I had assured myself long before, the perfection of childish rest. I recollect, in short, that, though I was deeply interested in my author, I found myself at the turn of a page, and with his spell all scattered, looking straight up from him and hard at the door of my room. There was a moment during which I listened, reminded of the faint sense I had had of the first night, of there being something undefinably astir in the house, and noted the soft breath of the open casement just move the half-drawn blind. Then, with all the marks of deliberation that must have seemed magnificent, had there been anyone to admire it, I laid down my book, rose to my feet, and, taking a candle, went straight out of the room and from the passage, on which my light made little impression, noiselessly closed and locked the door. I can say now neither what determined nor what guided me, but I went straight along the lobby, holding my candle high, till I came within sight of the tall window that presided over the great turn of the staircase. At this point, I precipitately found myself aware of three things— they were practically simultaneous, yet they had flashes of succession. My candle, under a bold flourish, went out, and I perceived by the uncovered window that the yielding dusk of earliest morning rendered it unnecessary. Without it, the next instant, I saw that there was someone on the stair. I speak of sequences, but I required no lapse of seconds to stiffen myself for a third encounter with Quint. The apparition had reached the landing halfway up, and was therefore on the spot nearest the window where, at sight of me, it stopped short and fixed me exactly as it had fixed me from the tower and from the garden. He knew me as well as I knew him, and so, in the cold, faint twilight, with a glimmer in the high glass and another on the polish of the oak stair below, we faced each other in our common intensity. He was absolutely, on this occasion, a living, detestable, dangerous presence. But that was not the wonder of wonders. I reserved this distinction for quite another circumstance, the circumstance that dread had unmistakably quitted me, and that there was nothing in me that there didn't meet and measure him. I had plenty of anguish after that extraordinary moment, but I had, thank God, no terror, and he knew I had not. I found myself, at the end of an instant, magnificently aware of this. I felt, in a fierce rigor of confidence, that if I stood my ground a minute— I should cease, for the time at least, to have him to reckon with, and during the minute, accordingly, the thing was as human and hideous as a real interview, hideous just because it was human, as human as to have met alone in the small hours in a sleeping house, some enemy, some adventurer, some criminal. 
It was the dead silence of our long gaze at such close quarters that gave the whole horror, huge as it was, its only note of the unnatural. If I had met a murderer in such a place and at such an hour, we still at least would have spoken. Something would have passed in life between us. If nothing had passed, one of us would have moved. The moment was so prolonged that it would have taken but little more to make me doubt if even I were in life. I can't express what followed it save by saying that the silence itself, which was indeed in a manner an attestation of my strength, became the element into which I saw the figure disappear, in which I definitely saw it turn as I might have seen the low wretch to which it had once belonged turn on receipt of an order, and pass, with my eyes on the villainous back that no hunch could have more disfigured, straight down the staircase and into the darkness in which the next bend was lost.